Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sabbath day. Thank you that you give us the privilege of coming into your presence. And now we can study your word. We would ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. Let these inspired words that you have given for us be meat in due season. Let us learn practical lessons that we need in our lives even now so that when, when the test comes, we also may be faithful and ready to see you soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard someone joke as they were getting, you know, kind of all bitten up by bugs in the summertime, how much they wish that, they might say something like, I wish Noah had just swatted those two mosquitoes. We wouldn't have this plague that we have today, of course. Uh, Similarly, you would think that those individuals, those eight people, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, that they would have, those were the only remaining eyewitnesses to the horrors of life in a fully wicked world before the Lord deluged the place with water. And you would have imagined that surely they, having seen what they had seen and survived what they had survived, that surely they would not allow the type of wickedness that brought about the flood back into the world once they stepped out of the boat on the other side. But sadly, that's not what the Bible records. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, starting with verse 1, we read these beautiful words that sound so strikingly similar to the words God had said to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Like I said, almost a word to word. In fact, it was word to word. The same command that God had given to the very first inhabitants of the planet, now he gives to the family of Noah. But within that very same chapter, in fact, only a few verses later, we find this story starting in verse 18. Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 18, we read. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. Now it puts that little statement in there, Ham was the father of Canaan, to set up the story we're about to read. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. That only makes sense. They're the only people there. And these are the three lines that come out of Noah's family. And it says in verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, there is not much said, pausing here, verses 20 and 21, in the rest of Scripture, or even in the spirit of prophecies, added uh, insights. No evidence is given about whether this was a good deed or a bad deed. Some scholars have speculated that perhaps Noah, being well over 600 years old now, yet having the command to be fruitful and multiply, had in a little bit of a doubting faith in God, had planted this vineyard and perhaps was drinking of the fruit of the vine as some sort of aphrodisiac to make that a, a possibility. But that's just mere speculation. We simply don't know. The Bible doesn't comment on the on this behavior. However, what happens next is huge. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, just from an English reading of that one sentence, it would seem like, oh, that's an incredibly awkward moment. It's a little embarrassing for everybody. And so he steps out and tells his brothers, hey, don't go in there. Dad's, you know, not in a condition to be seen. 
but the word that's used there for saw is not a glancing, a passing glance or a happenstance look. It's an ongoing, it has a tense in the Hebrew of a voyeuristic kind of enjoyment. Uh, it's a very um, unhealthy, dysfunctional thing that Ham has done here. And he goes and tells his brothers. But verse 23, you see the contrast. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now again, there's not much said about Noah's behavior, but there is a great deal said about Ham's. In fact, Noah himself says in verse 24, awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, and we find this prophecy of the lineage of Noah, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brother. You notice that every time that Ham has been mentioned, it's the father of Canaan. It's almost as though Ham's actions completely take him out of the family line, and it starts with Canaan now. That Canaan will be the, the, the lineage through which his name is reckoned. Ham is wiped out altogether. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Do you see that we have Just as we had before the flood, we now have two lines, two family histories, two genealogies, one faithful and one unfaithful. The very cause that long before had brought about the flood, now we see it beginning again afterwards. And he adds in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Notice that Shem would be the predominant family line of the faithful, and then there would be this Canaan line that would be cursed. Commenting on Ham's behavior just after the flood, we read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 117, the unnatural crime of Ham declared that filial reverence, and that is, you know, honor due parents, had long before been cast from his soul, and it revealed the impiety and vileness of his character. Now, whatever this unnatural, and again, nowhere in inspiration does it explicitly tell us what he did, but apparently it was so grotesque to wipe his name out, to be a curse for the rest of generations to come. That level of wickedness does not spring about in a moment. Apparently, it's, as it is to us today, actions merely reveal your character. And what Ham did there revealed a vileness of character that had been stowed away on that ark, like the mosquito, if you will. That that sinful tendency that the Lord had destroyed the world before actually made it through in the life of Ham. Said these evil characteristics were perpetuated in Canaan and his posterity, whose continued, continued guilt called upon them the judgments of God. Basically, as the wickedness of Cain's descendants corrupted the world before the flood, the wickedness of Ham's descendants did so after the flood. And thus we see in Genesis chapter 10... A genealogy, once again. The descendants from Noah. And it articulates each of the three sons and the lineage that would come through them. Now, we're not going to take the time to read through this, A, because it would take a long time, and B, I would mess it up horribly. But I want to bring your attention. If you were to scan through verses 6 through 20, it outlines the family line of Ham. Okay, And we'll just start here just a little bit. It says, verse 6, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. So Canaan was one of his four sons. And it goes on to list the sons of Cush in the next verse. 
And in verse 8, we have a little footnote that's going to become a very important thing in the next chapter. It says, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. So apparently there were three other towns, but the very beginning of his kingdom was a place called Babel. And we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. If you were to continue to read through, which I would encourage you to do sometime, to read through these genealogies, a lot of the names are going to be very strange, very odd to the English tongue to say, but some of them, in fact, quite a few of them, you would recognize as appearing later in other Bible stories. Not once as the friend of God's people. For instance, you will see places that these individuals from the line of Ham established. Places like Assyria, which the people of Assyria, if you recall your Bible history, were some of the most wicked people that ever lived on the earth, and God had to destroy them from the face of the earth completely. You read about Nineveh being established. Nineveh, of course, was the home of the people God almost destroyed for their wickedness during the time of Jonah. You'll read about the establishment of a city called Sidon. Sidon, for a little trivia, was Jezebel's hometown. Her father was the king of Sidon during the time of Elijah. You'll read also of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which are the four towns that God destroyed for their wickedness in the time of Abram. So pretty much everything that came out of this line of Ham were notoriously wicked and had had to experience the judgment of God for their evil ways. You'll also see people groups emerge from this lineage, like the Philistines, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites. Again, all notorious enemies of God's people. The places that found it and the families that came from them were notoriously wicked and enemies of God. And it says in verse, chapter 10 and verse 20, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in the lands and in their nations. So these were the families of Ham. Now, were these individuals wicked? Kind of a theme we picked up on last time when we looked at the lineage of Cain. Were they wicked because they were destined to be wicked because of Ham's transgression? Was Ham so bad that every one of them automatically, without any choice of their own, were just as bad? No. But the inclinations, the proclivities, the hereditary inheritance that we get... Can you have a hereditary inheritance? Sure, we'll go with it. But those traits of character, you may not be guilty for your father's actions, but you certainly are influenced by his character. Notice again, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 118. The prophecy of Noah was no arbitrary denunciation of wrath or declaration of favor. Favor. He wasn't saying, all right, now Seth, I mean Shem, you guys are all going to be good, I therefore declare it. And Canaan, all of you will automatically be bad because I have said so. It's not what he's doing here. It did not fix the character and destiny of his sons. You could have, if they wanted to choose, good people out of the line of Ham and bad people from the line of Shem. But it showed what would be the result of the course of life they had severally chosen and the character they had developed. It was an expression of God's purpose towards them and their posterity in view of their own character and conduct. Basically, this is saying, if you continue on in this course, this is where things will end up. And she explains, once again, as a rule, 
children inherit the disposition inherit the dispositions and tendencies of their parents and imitate their example and i don't know again we've repeated this before but some of the most frustrating times at least in my life is when i look in the mirror and i recognize my parents for better or for worse I see it come out in hand gestures, I see it come in the way that I speak, the way that I carry myself, the physical features, and yes, even the moral tendencies, for better or for worse, have been granted through me, through, to me through their inherited tendencies, through their example in life, and I am a product of that. Now, I can choose for myself, but I come preloaded with a bent towards what they were, right? As a rule, children inherit the dispositions and tendencies of their parents and imitate their example. So that the sins of the parents are practiced by the children from generation to generation. Thus the vileness and irreverence of Ham were reproduced in his posterity, bringing a curse upon them for many generations. So as the genealogies unfold here in Genesis chapter 10, it's little surprise that where it's said in verse, uh, and verse 10 how one of Ham's descendants began his kingdom with a little place called Babel. We find that story in Genesis chapter 11 expanded a little bit. Here from the lineage of Ham, we find the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, we read in Genesis chapter one, uh, chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Does that make sense that they would be speaking one language and one speech at this time in earth's history? Absolutely. They came from one family who just came off the boat. Just, and they had these, mag, these magnificent lifespans so that even generation after generation and generation were still alive. So the continuation of language is a very common sense thing to happen. There could have been a great number of people by this time, and still they'd speak one language. It says in verse 2, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, this apparently did not happen immediately. Apparently, for quite a while, they lived in very close proximity to the landing spot of the ark. But over the course of time, they began to explore out in the world. Now, what would be the motivation for this? Interestingly enough, we read from page 118 of Patriarchs and Prophets, For a time, the descendants of Noah continued to dwell among the mountains where the ark had rested. As their numbers increased, apostasy soon led to division. Those who desired to forget their creator and cast off the restraint of his law felt a constant annoyance from the teaching and example of their God-fearing associates, and after a time they decided to separate from the worshipers of God. So what drove them out of the mountains into the plain of Shinar was not like an amicable, you know, just kind of mutually you go your way, I'll go mine. It was an annoyance. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I'm going to assume that it never has happened to you, and I'm only speaking for myself. But sometimes, if you're the one being naughty, the people not being naughty are very annoying. In your naughtiness, they are a standing rebuke. And sometimes they might even say something or give you a look or kind of tell on you or something that makes you very, bring you back to, you know, the rule says, I know what the rule says. I'm trying to be naughty and you're ruining it. And the annoyance of having to live in the presence of people who are faithful when you're trying to be unfaithful, at some point you say, that's it, I'm done, I'm out. 
Amos chapter 3 talks about, can two walk together unless they be agreed? There's a natural tendency to start separating from that which is unlike you. And praise the Lord, as we begin to walk with Christ, he begins to pull us out of those associations and influences that we used to revel in, and now they become, instead of interesting, they become more revolting and more distancing, and I don't want to go where they go. I don't want to do what they do. I want to look at what they do. I want to practice. I'm not, I don't care about what you're inviting me to. I'm just not interested anymore. And your life of righteousness is a standing rebuke against their life of wickedness, and they want out, and so do you. And this is what happened to the descendants of Noah. They had been happy in a certain area there, but this distinction between the righteous and the wicked grew so great that the wicked said, we're going out of here. And they found a place in Shinar and dwelt there. It continues on in verse 3. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, a lot has been made of the fact that they were building a tower and the materials apparently were to make it waterproof. The implication is they knew that the the Lord had punished wickedness with a flood before and they were afraid that he would do it once again, but this time they were going to outsmart him. Now, What's fascinating about this is the Lord specifically promised at the end of Genesis chapter 9 that he would never flood the earth again. And he gave a sign, an ongoing or perpetual sign for generations to come that every time they saw that rainbow in the sky, they would remember that God would not destroy in the same way he had done before. That the flood is not something you have to worry about. Yet here they are building a massive tower made out of waterproof materials. But I want to bring to your attention that while, yes, avoiding the potential disaster of what they thought could be another flood was one of their motives, it was not their primary objective in building this tower. In fact, building a tower wasn't their main thing. Notice it said, let, let, come let us make a what? A city that happens to have a tower in it, right? With a tower that reaches to the heavens. And notice the reasons they explicitly say. Number one, let us make a what? A name for whom? Ourselves. First of all, we're going to make the best city this world. We're going to make the greatest city. We're going to make the biggest city, the best city. And it's going to be notorious. It's going to be known. It's going to be famous. It's going to be, it's going to be to our glory to make our name great. And notice the second reason, that they would not be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, we just read in Genesis chapter 9, when they step out of the boat, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Go. And they said, you know what? Let's stay. Instead of filling the whole earth and us being separated, let's unite together, make the greatest city this planet has ever known and will ever know, and the tower will be a symbol of our greatness, and people will look to it and wonder after our renown. Again, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 118, speaking of this plain of Shinar and what they decided to do there. Here they decided to build a city, and in it a tower of such stupendous height as should render it the wonder of the world. They wanted it to be so big, not so that they could get away from a flood per se, even though that's part of it. They wanted it to be seen from every distance imaginable. They wanted it to be the center of the known world. These enterprises were designed 
to prevent the people from scattering abroad in colonies. God had directed men to disperse throughout the earth to replenish and subdue it. But these Babel builders determined to keep their community united in one body and to found a monarchy that should eventually embrace the whole earth. They wanted one world government, one language, and it to be named in their image, in their honor. By the way, isn't it so nice that they wanted a community united? That's so sweet. (laughs) Let me tell you something, friends. Satan is a big fan of unity, too. Now, the Christian church should be united, but united in obedience to God. Satan wants people united, but united in rebellion against God. Well, the story continues. She, She continues to write, Thus their city would become the metropolis of a universal empire. Its glory would command the admiration and homage of the world and render the founders illustrious. The magnificent tower reaching to the heavens was intended to stand as a monument of the power and wisdom of its builders, perpetuating their fame to the latest generations. The purpose of the tower being so big was to make their name that great and universally regarded as wonderful. But basically what you have is the Lord told the people after the flood, scatter, and these people said, no. When God promised that there would be no flood, they disobeyed his word. They distrusted him. And of course, later on, we know the story how this goes on. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. We're going to pick up on this theme a little later in this series, but you notice that the Lord always comes down to investigate before he executes judgment as though the Lord doesn't know what's going on already. But he comes down to see. And the Lord said, look at verse 6, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld for them. Do you think that Satan realizes that there's power in unity? Absolutely. But now the Lord says, Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. So the city got started, the tower was begun, but the Lord intervened to halt their progress and confuse their language, and so the city kind of just, that's as big as it got. And some apparently would have stayed there speaking that same language, but others speaking their own language now would cluster up and colonize and go out with little groups where they could understand each other, and thus the Lord scattered them from the face of the earth, getting his original intent accomplished through their disobedience. And it says in verse 9, Therefore its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So Babel means confusion. But these Babel builders did not have confusion in mind when they went to build the tower and they went to build the city. They had fame in mind. They had power and glory in mind. But the Lord turned it against them. Now, what's fascinating to me is that that same spirit of rebellion was manifest centuries later when the great empire of Babylon built in that very location, according to the same name as the Genesis original, another great city. And they defied God once again. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Let's read about this. In, In Genesis 11 there, we saw the building of this great city for the glory and renown of its founders in defiance of God. 
And in the book of Daniel, lo and behold, Daniel is taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, who in Daniel chapter 4 had a personal rebuke because he stood on the wall and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for my name and for my glory? Then then Daniel chapter 5 comes along. In light of the rebuke that Nebuchadnezzar receives, Belshazzar has an opportunity to recalibrate and humble the kingdom of Babylon. But what does he do? He follows in the steps of the original Babel builders. Notice again, Daniel chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. So not only were they having this drunken revelry, but they decided to take it to another level altogether and bring in the articles from the Lord's house and from them drink their corrupting wine. And this is the very night that Babylon fell. Daniel, you know the story has come, is brought in to interpret what happened next, of course, with the handwriting on the wall. The Lord you know, announces the judgment on Babylon through this mysterious hand writing these words on the wall. And Daniel comes to and give the meaning and interpret it. And he says in verse 24, I'm sorry, uh, verse 23 of Daniel chapter 5, And you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And this is fascinating language. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So we... Oftentimes you'll hear the Lord gracious and kind and creator of heaven and earth. And, but here is the Lord who holds your breath in his hand. And yet you don't give him glory. And you bring the glory to yourself. And in fact, you defy him. And that night, Babylon fell. So twice now in the Old Testament we've seen arrogant, self-aggrandizing, self-exalting, rebellious against the word of God individuals build a great city in the same place, call it by the same name, and the same result happens. The Lord visits with judgment, and the city is brought down. It's halted right in its tracks. Now this Old Testament experience of the Tower of Babel and and the empire of Babylon become a template the prophetic writers, the book of John and the book of Revelation, I mean, the writer John and the book of Revelation apply to an end-time rebellion. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Again, the Bible prophecy foretells the rise of a final end-time Babylon. There will be a marked rebellion against God and his word, even among those who claim to be his followers. Notice Revelation chapter 17, starting with verse 1. 
Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And of course, you understand in the book of Revelation that a woman represents the church. And the many waters are the nations of the earth that follow her lead. And it says in verse 2, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The same imagery from the previous Babylons are now brought to task here. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, of the abominations of the earth. So apparently in Bible prophecy in the end time, there will be a Babylon 3.0, if you will. There will be a power representing the same arrogance and defiance of God who will seek to have the whole world wander after them in rebellion. Now, if you turn to chapter 18, just right next door, you see that once again, God punishes and ends this Babylonian power, just as he had done the two previous times before. Revelation chapter 18, starting with verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is what? Fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. The implication is there's a worldwide movement following in the footsteps of this leader, Babylon, making everyone drunk off of their doctrines and wine. And yet God calls them, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and receive of her plagues. Verse 5, For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. There is a Babylon to watch out for in these last days of earth's history. It's more subtle. It's more sophisticated. But has the exact same aims as the original Babel builders and the empire of Babylon that came after it. We read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 123, In the professedly Christian world, many turn away from the plain teachings of the Bible and build up a creed from human speculations and pleasing fables. And they point to their tower as a way to climb up to heaven. So they claim the name of God, but they doctor up all the other things that are more pleasing, that are easier, that that are more popular. And they said, that is our tower. We will follow that instead of following the word of the Lord. Men hang with admiration upon the lips of eloquence while it teaches that the transgressor shall not die, that salvation may be obscured without obedience to the law of God. If professed followers of Christ would accept God's standards, it would bring them into unity. But so long as human wisdom is exalted above his holy word, 
there will be divisions and dissension. You ever wonder why there are so many denominations in the world when there's one textbook to follow? How can there be one book and so many different denominations, so many different faiths that claim this as their guide? Is it perhaps not that the word is unclear, but it's cutting in its nature and it's unpopular to receive? And thus they say, well, yes, this, but let's tweak this and let's call this the official name. And thus you have Babylon. Notice this. The existing confusion of conflicting creeds and sects is fitly represented by the term Babylon, which prophecy applies to the world-loving churches of the last days. Inside the Christian world and without, there is a Babylon today. There are Christian in name, Babel builders today, and of course their great tower are the traditions and teachings of the Roman Catholic papacy. The marvel that the whole world is said to wonder after in these last days in defiance of God. But as we go back to Genesis chapter 11, you would, I, I want to I bring out that there is great hope. I don't want to say, well, Babylon's going to be restored once again, and this time they're going to get it right, and they're going to end the world in a horrible ruin. No, that's not the case. Genesis chapter 11 does not end with the story of the Tower of Babel. It's only the first nine verses. The rest then gives us the genealogy of Shem, the line of the faithful. During the time of the building of the Tower of Babel, there was this faithful line who refused to disobey God's commands. And again, I'm not going to read all the names, but if you were looking to name children, you know, there's some interesting names there. But I want to bring you down to verse Let's start with verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 24. Nahor lived 79 years and begot Terah. And after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. And now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And it picks up on this man Terah and his children, specifically one of those children. Abram. Verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. So it's introducing us to characters that are going to become center in chapter 12. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no children. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So you notice that in this family, there is a leaving from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is the realm of Babylon, and they start heading out. Apparently the Lord is leading them out. And they only get to Haran when Terah the father dies. It says in verse 32, So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. But Haran was not their last stop. They were supposed to go to Canaan. And thus we see in chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, 
from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Please notice, the Lord has no problem with there being a great nation on the earth. He has no problem with someone's name being great. But the greatness of Abram's name was not supposed to be in rebellion to God, but it was in obedience to God and faithfulness to God. And through that, true greatness is found. It says in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A reference to the coming King, Jesus Christ, who would come through this lineage. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, just as God had a faithful and loyal Abram in the midst of the Babylonian rebellion in ancient times, In these last days, God has promised that there will be those who will come out of Babylon and will follow God wherever he leads. In fact, of all the most beautiful things you could say about the remnant people of God, I love the succinct simplicity of Revelation 14 and verse 4, where it simply says of them, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Isn't that the best definition of faithfulness in all the Bible? You follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And it says that these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Friends, if we want to live through the end times, if we want to go from this world to the next, we don't have to have some sort of supernatural insight. We don't have to have some divine. No, no. What we need is to simply say, when God says go, you go. If he says stay, you stay. If he says speak, you speak. But whatever God says, wherever the Lamb leads, you follow. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 126. Speaking of this leaving that Abram and his family did, and that he continues out after his father's death. We read, It was no light test that was thus brought upon Abram, no small sacrifice that was required of him. There were strong ties to bind him to his country, his kindred, and his home. But he did not hesitate to obey the call. He had no question to ask concerning the land of promise, whether the soil was fertile and the climate healthful, whether the country afforded agreeable surroundings and would afford opportunities for amassing wealth. Think about it. The Lord says, I need you to get up and leave. I know my first response would probably be like, where? Instead of, yes, sir. You know, I'm trying to train my son on this one. Go pick up your toys. Why? Mm -mm. This is not a negotiation. This is not a compromise. I'm not asking you to to meet me halfway. I'm saying, do this thing. Will you do it? And do you trust me that what I'm asking to do is in your best interest and in the best interest of my work? Abraham could have said, where is this land? What's it going to be like there? Is there good farmland? Am I going to be able to continue my growth of wealth? But he didn't do that. He could have said, well, yeah, but I've got family and friends, and you know, we, I've been really close with my cousin. Didn't ask you to negotiate. I just said go. Then she makes this application. Many are still tested, as was Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, but he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. They may be required to abandon a career that promises wealth and honor. To leave congenial and profitable associations and separate from kindred. To enter upon what appears to be only a path of self-denial, hardship, and sacrifice. By the way, when Abram left there, it wasn't like, I just trust that everything's going to be fertile and beautiful and wonderful. He got to the place and what did he find? Famine. 
He went to the promised land, and who were there? Canaanites. You know. But Lord, I thought that he didn't ask. He just obeyed. God has a work for them to do, speaking of these people he's calling out today. But a life of ease and the influence of friends and kindred would hinder the development of the very traits essential for its accomplishment. He calls them away from human influences and, and aid and leads them to feel the need of his help and to depend on, on him alone that he may reveal himself to them. So she asked rhetorically, who is ready at the call of providence to renounce cherished plans and familiar associations? Who will accept new duties and enter untried fields, doing God's work with firm and willing heart for Christ's sake, counting his losses gain? You know, in my mind, it boils down to simply this. When God told the descendants of of Ham to go, they stayed. But when God told Abram to go, he went. That is the difference between righteousness and wickedness. It's not complicated. It's not mysterious. It's not so far beyond our, our comprehension that we can't really wrap. No, it isn't. When you read in God's word, a thus saith the Lord, do you accept or do you reject? Do you try to seek a compromise? Do you try to meet him halfway or do you say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'll do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go. Friends, I believe that the Lord Jesus is coming back, and the Bible asks, will he find faith on the earth? And what does faith look like? It simply looks like whatever the Lord says, you do. That we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Let me ask you a question. Has this made sense today? Praise the Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.